0: Chapter 55. That night I wake. Cold. I've kicked my blankets off and the window is open. I sit up too fast and my head spins. A memory. Aunt Carrie. Crying. Bent over with snot running down her face. Not even bothering to wipe it off. She's doubled over. She's shaking. She might throw up. It's dark out, and she's wearing a white cotton blouse with a wind jacket over it. Johnny's blue checked one. Why is she wearing Johnny's wind jacket? Why is she so sad? I get up and find a sweatshirt and shoes. I grab a flashlight and head to Cuddletown. The great room is empty and lit by moonlight. Bottles litter the kitchen counter. Someone left a sliced apple out, and it's browning. I can smell it. Mirren is here. I didn't see her before. She's tucked beneath a striped afghan, leaning against the couch. You're up, she whispers. I came looking for you. How come? I had this memory. Aunt Carrie was crying. She was wearing Johnny's coat. Do you remember Carrie crying? Sometimes. but. Summer 15? When she had the short haircut? No, says Mirren. How come you're not asleep? I ask. Mirren shakes her head. I don't know. I sit down. Can I ask you a question? Sure. I need you to tell me what happened before my accident. And after. You always say nothing important but something must have happened to me, besides hitting my head during a nighttime swim. Uh-huh. Do you know what it was? Penny said the doctors want it left alone. You'll remember in your own time, and no one should push you on it. But I'm asking, Mirren, I need to know. She put her head down on her knees, thinking. What is your best guess? She finally says. I... I suppose I was the victim of something. It's hard to say these words. I suppose that I was raped or attacked or some godforsaken something. That's the kind of thing that makes people have amnesia, isn't it? Mirren rubs her lips. I don't know what to tell you, she says. Tell me what happened, I say. It was a messed up summer. How so? That's all I can say, my darling Katie. Why won't you ever leave Cuddlestown? I ask suddenly. You hardly ever leave except to go to the tiny beach. I went kayaking today, she says. But you got sick. Do you have that fear? I ask. That fear of going out. Agoraphobia. I don't feel well, Katie, says in defensive. I'm cold all the time. I can't stop shivering. My throat is raw. If you felt this way, you wouldn't go out either. I feel worse than that all the time, but for once I don't mention my headaches. We should tell Bess then. Take you to the doctor. Mirren shakes her head. It's just a stupid cold I can't shake. I'm being a baby about it. Will you give me a ginger ale? I cannot argue anymore. I get her a ginger ale we turn on the TV. Chapter 56 In the morning, there is a tire swing hanging from the tree on the lawn of Windermere, the same way one used to hang from the huge old maple in front of Claremont. It's perfect, just like the one Granny Tipper spun me on, Dad, Granddad, Mummy, like the one Gat and I kissed on in the middle of the night. I remember now, summer 15, Johnny, Mirangat, and I squashed into that Clermont swing together. We were much too big to fit. We elbowed each other and rearranged ourselves. We giggled and complained, accused each other of having big asses, accused each other of being smelly and rearranged again. Finally, we got settled. Then we couldn't spin. We were jammed so hard into the swing. There was no way to get moving. We yelled and yelled for a push. The twins walked by and refused to help. Finally, Taft and Will came out of Clermont and did our bidding. Grunting, they pushed us in a wide circle. Our weight was such that after they let us go, we spun faster and faster, laughing so hard we felt dizzy and sick. All four of us liars. I remember that now. This new swing looks strong. The knots are tied carefully. Inside the tie is an envelope. Gat's handwriting. For Cady. I open the envelope. More than a dozen dried beech roses spill out. Chapter 57 Once upon a time there was a king who had three beautiful daughters. He gave them whatever their hearts desired and when they grew of age, their marriages were celebrated with grand festivities. When the youngest daughter gave birth to a baby girl, the king and queen were overjoyed. Soon afterward, the middle daughter gave birth to a girl of her own, and the celebrations were repeated. Last, the eldest daughter gave birth to twin boys, but alas, all was not as one might hope. One of the twins was human, a bouncing baby boy. The other was no more than a mouseling. There was no celebration. No announcements were made. The eldest daughter was consumed with shame. One of her children was nothing but an animal. He would never sparkle, sunburnt and blessed, the way members of the royal family were expected to do. The children grew, and the mouseling as well. He was clever and always kept his whiskers clean. He was smarter and more curious than his brothers or his cousins. Still, he disgusted the king, and he disgusted the queen. As soon as she was able, his mother set the mouseling on his feet, gave him a small satchel in which she placed a blueberry and some nuts, and sent him off to see the world. Set out he did, for the mouseling had seen enough of courtly life to know that should he stay home, he would always be a dirty secret. A source of humiliation to his mother and anyone who knew him. He did not even look back at the castle that had been his home. There, he would never even have a name. Now, he was free to go forth and make a name for himself in the wide, wide world. And maybe, just maybe, he'd come back one day and burn that fucking place to the ground. Part 4. Look, a fire. Chapter 58 Look, a fire, there on the northern tip of Beechwood Island, where the maple tree stands over the wide lawn. The house is alight. The flames shoot high, brightening the sky. There is no one here to help. Far in the distance, I can see the vineyard firefighters making their way across the bay in a lighted boat. Even farther away. The wood's whole fire boat chugs towards the fire that we set. Gat, Johnny, Mirren and me. We set this fire and it is burning down Clermont. Burning down the palace. The palace of the king who had three beautiful daughters. We set it. Me, Johnny, Gat and Mirren. I remember this now. In a rush that hits me so hard I fall. And I plunge down down to rocky rocky bottom and I can see the base of Beechwood Island and my arms and legs feel numb but my fingers are cold, slices of seaweed go past as I fall. And then I am up again, and breathing, and Clermont is burning. I am in my bed in Windermere, in the early light of dawn. It is the first day of my last week on the island. I stumble to the window, wrapped in my blanket. There is New Clermont, all hard modernity in Japanese garden. I see it for what it is now. It is a house built on ashes. Ashes of the life Grandad shared with Gran. Ashes of the maple from which the tire swing flew. Ashes of the old Victorian house with the porch and the hammock. The new house is built on the grave of all the trophies and symbols of the family. The New York cartoons. The taxidermy, the embroidered pillows, the family portraits, we burned them all. On a night when Grandad and the rest had taken boats across the bay, when the staff was off duty and we liars were alone on the island, the four of us did what we were afraid to do. We burned not a home, but a symbol. We burned a symbol to the ground. Chapter 59 The cuddle down door is locked. I bang until Johnny appears, wearing the clothes he had on last night. "'I'm making pretentious tea,' he says. "'Did you sleep in your clothes?' "'Yes.' "'We set a fire,' I tell him, still standing in the doorway. "'They will not lie to me anymore. "'Go places without me. "'Make decisions without me. "'I understand our story now. "'We are criminals. "'A band of four. Johnny looks me in the eyes for a long time, but doesn't say a word. Eventually he turns and goes into the kitchen. I follow. Johnny pours hot water from the kettle into teacups. What else do you remember? he asks. I hesitate. I can see the fire, the smoke, how huge Claremont looked as it burned. I know, irrevocably and certainly, that we set it. I can see Marin's hand, her chipped gold nail polish, holding a jug of gas for the motorboats. Johnny's feet, running down the stairs from Claremont to the boathouse. Grandad, holding on to a tree, his face lit by the glow of a bonfire. No, correction. The glow of his house, burning to the ground. But these are memories I've had all along. I just know where to fit them now. Not everything, I tell Johnny. I just know we set the fire. I can see the flames. He lies down on the floor of the kitchen and stretches his arms over his head. Are you okay? I ask. I'm fucking tired, if you want to know. Johnny rolls over on his face and pushes his nose against the tile. They said they weren't speaking anymore, he mumbles into the floor. They said it was over and they were cutting off from each other. Who? The aunties. I lie down on the floor next to him so I can hear what he's saying. The aunties got drunk, night after night. Johnny mumbles as if it's hard to choke the words out, and angrier every time, screaming at each other, staggering around the lawn. Grandad did nothing but fuel them. We watched them crawl over grand's things and the art that hung in Clermont. Real estate and money, most of all. Grandad was drunk of his own power, and my mother wanted me to make a play for the money. Besides, I was the oldest boy. She pushed me and pushed me, I don't know, to be the bright young heir, to talk badly of you as the eldest, to be the educated white hope of the future of democracy, some bullshit. She'd lost Grandad's favour, and she'd wanted me to get it so she didn't lose her inheritance. As he talks, memories flash across my skull. So hard and bright they hurt. I flinch and put my hands over my eyes. Do you remember any more about the fire? He asked gently. Is it coming back? I close my eyes for a moment and try. No, not that. But other things. Johnny reaches out and takes my hand. Chapter 60 Spring before summer 15 Mummy made me write to Grandad. Nothing blatant. Thinking of you and your loss today. Hoping you're well. I sent actual cards. Heavy cream stock with Cadence Sinclair Eastman printed across the top. Dear Grandad, I just rode in a 5k bike ride for cancer research. Tennis team starts up next week. Our book club is reading Brideshead's Revisited. Love you. Just remind him that you care, said Mummy, and that you're a good person. Well-rounded and a credit to the family. I complained. Writing the letters seemed false. Of course I cared. I loved Grandad and I did think about him. But I didn't want to write these reminders of my excellence every two weeks. "'He's very impressionable right now,' said Mummy. "'He's suffering, thinking about the future. "'You're the first grandchild. "'Johnny's only three weeks younger.' "'That's my point. "'Johnny's a boy and he's only three weeks younger.' So write the letter. I did as she asked. On Beechwood summer 15, the aunties filled in for Gran, making slumps and fussing around Grandad as if he hadn't been living alone in Boston since Tipper died in October. But they were quarrelsome. They no longer had the glue of Gran keeping them together, and they fought over their memories, her jewellery, the clothes in her closet, her shoes even. These affairs had not been settled in October. People's feelings had been too de- delicate then. It had all been left for the summer. When we got to Beechwood in late June, Bess had already inventoried Grands Boston possessions and now began with those in Clermont. The aunts had copies on their tables and pulled them up regularly. "'I always loved that jade gre- that jade tree ornament. I'm surprised you remember it. You never helped decorate.' Who do you think took the tree down? Every year I wrapped all the ornaments in tissue paper. Martyr. Here are the pearl earrings Mother promised me. The black pearls? She said I could have them. The aunts began to blur into one as the days of the summer ticked past. Argument after argument. Old injuries were rehashed and threaded through the new ones. Variations. Tell Grandad how much you love the embroidered tablecloths. Mummy told me. I don't love them. He won't say no to you. The two of us were alone in the Windermere kitchen. She was drunk. You love me, don't you, Cadence? You're all I have now. You're not like Dad. I just don't care about tablecloths. So lie. Tell him the ones from the Boston house. The cream ones with the embroidery. It was easiest to tell her I would. And later... I told her I had, but Bess had asked Mirren to do the same thing and neither one of us had begged Grandad for the fucking tablecloths.